Lord, as we open your word and dig into one of these famous classic songs that we sing as your church, I pray that your truth will come out and take root deeper in our hearts, Lord. Be more alive in us than when we entered today. Amen. Well, I admit it, I am a man that is too emotionally attached to sports. It was a Sunday afternoon, January 18th, 2015, and is often my custom. I'm leaving the house, walking to usually Letter Street's Coffee House or Primer, and then I make this prayer walking loop back to the church, so I'm here around four and then get to talk with people and help set up. Well, on that particular day, I left in the third quarter of the Seahawks NFC Championship game versus the Green Bay Packers, and they were just getting beat abysmally. And I, as I'm walking towards the coffee shop, I'm repenting under my breath, Lord, forgive me for caring too much about this game. I mean, here I am going to preach a sermon and worship the living God, and I'm depressed about a stupid football game. So I get my coffee, and I'm starting to walk to church, and I hear some cheers coming out of a, a house nearby, and I figure, uh, probably the lone Green Bay fan besides Nicole Burdick uh, in our town here. <laughs> And then I get to Halleck Street, and, and I take a left, and I'm headed just a few blocks from the church, and all of a sudden, three front doors of houses erupt with, we're going to the Super Bowl, and some dude runs out to me and just high-fives me randomly, and it was amazing. The Seahawks somehow scored 15 points in the fourth quarter, and then six in overtime, and went on to win and go to the Super Bowl. We won't talk about how that went, but that, that, was, that was amazing. And if someone would have written a song about it, it may have gone something like this. Go tell it on front doorsteps, over the threshold and down the street. Go tell it on front doorsteps. The Seahawks won the NFC while Pastor Chris was sulking, <laughs> sipping coffee on J Street. Behold that Russell Wilson refused to accept defeat. Right, okay, so you get the picture. <laughs> I, yeah. 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 When something amazing happens, we want to celebrate. We burst out of our front doors and across thresholds and high five strangers and we sing, don't we? We make songs and poems and stories. That's the feeling evoked in the song, Go Tell It on the Mountain. This is the final song that we're going to be exploring in our series called Shaped by Our Songs. In our series, we've been exploring the biblical and historical roots of some of the songs that we sing as the church during Advent and, and Christmas. But this being Christmas Sunday, I thought it fitting to take a look at this expressive, jubilant, declarative celebration of a song that announces and pronounces the birth of Jesus. Go Tell It on the Mountain is rooted in Luke 2, 8 through 14, and it focuses on the good news that the angels bring to the lowly shepherds who are watching in their fields at night. You know the song, Go Tell It on the Mountain, Over the Hills and Everywhere. Don't worry, we'll get to sing this later. Go Tell It on the Mountain that Jesus Christ is born. While shepherds kept their watching or silent flocks by night, behold, throughout the heavens there shone a holy light. The shepherds feared and trembled when low above the earth rang out the angel chorus that hailed our Savior's birth. Down in a lowly manger, the humble Christ was born, and God sent us salvation that blessed Christmas morn. What a fun song, right? Go tell it on the mountain. 
It's a blast to sing. It encourages us as the church to express our joy uh, that Christ has come into the world. But if we're not careful, we're in danger of singing this song, even from a place of great joy, but missing its power. You see, it's far too easy for us to place the birth of Jesus in the category of some ancient miracle or some general spiritual example. Don't get me wrong at all. It is a worship-worthy thing that the God of the universe, the creator of all things, emptied himself and humbly became a baby. It is worthy of our worship and adoration to consider that Jesus did this not only to identify with us, but that so we might identify with him, that we could see his love in action. Those are important things that deserve to be mentioned and sung about and thought rigorously and theologically by, uh, by people in seminaries and, and graduate settings. But we also have to resist the temptation to leave the birth of Jesus in the realm of theory or good feelings or material for good songs and poems and narratives. Go Tell It on the Mountain is fun to sing, but it wasn't written with the sole purpose of being fun. In fact, this song was written precisely because life wasn't very fun. The song originated in the southern United States in the mid-1800s. It was an African-American spiritual, likely written by just about to be emancipated or newly emancipated slaves, right around the Civil War. And like many African-American spirituals of that era, it was passed down through oral tradition, so there are dozens and dozens of versions of this, uh, of the verses. The one constant in the song is the refrain, go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and far away, go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. The song came into the mainstream uh, because it was sung by this group of singers called the Jubilee Singers, an African-American group from Fisk University in Nashville, Tennessee. And although many white uh, groups of people would prevent this African-American choral group from singing, they did get invited to sing with some of the great evangelists like D.L. Moody in Chicago, and they even got to go overseas and sing for Queen Victoria and the Prince of Wales. It wasn't until 1907 that the song as we know it and we sing it came to be kind of canonized in its current form. And that was done by another African-American scholar, John Wesley Work II, who is a Greek and Latin professor at Fisk University. He also had a side passion for canonizing Negro spirituals. And so he created a whole book, and he likely is the one who penned the verses that we sing today. The point is that Go Tell It on the Mountain was not designed to be a song of fluff. It was a song of deliverance. It was the song of the oppressed who had put their faith in Jesus as the promised Savior, the liberator from tyranny and injustice. And the song is deeply rooted in biblical imagery. As we noted before, it is rooted in Luke chapter 2. But even deeper, a, a deeper reading of the song finds its roots in Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 52. Where have we heard the theme? Mountaintop and declarations before. The gospel of the Old Testament, which is Isaiah 40 and 52. In both of these settings, Israel had been conquered by the Babylonians. Their temple, 
Their capital city of Jerusalem was destroyed and leveled. Their best and their brightest had been dragged off as political prisoners, as slaves into Babylon. The strong were forced into labor. The bright were forced, like Daniel, remember from last week, they were put into positions of government where they had to serve their overlords. And it was in this setting of slavery and oppression that God speaks through the prophet Isaiah and he he tells him to deliver a word of comfort to the people of, of, of Israel. Particularly, he promises that Yahweh himself will come like a warrior to defeat their great enemy. Isaiah 40 verse 9 says, Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. And again, in Isaiah 52, 7, we read, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces shalom and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, Your king is God. Here's the idea. Israel, at this time, had been conquered because she had directly rebelled against God, her king. Israel had gone after idols, and God let them have their way. Babylon threatened, and instead of turning to God, Israel turns to other nations and to foreign gods. It looked like the end was done. They had been dragged off. They had left Israel. They were dragged into captivity way over in Babylon, and then God intervenes, and he reaches out, and he promises salvation, deliverance from oppression, and the arrival of justice and equity, and he would do this by coming to rule in a way that would bring true peace or shalom on earth. Now, fast forward to the birth of Jesus hundreds of years later, Israel had once again turned their back on God, and the pattern was getting old, and it was getting tired. This time, God acted in a decisive way. This time, he wouldn't wait for Israel to turn back toward him. He would simply come and would rescue not just Israel, but the whole world, whoever put their faith in him. And when he did this, the angels declared this news in boisterous song, proclaiming the good news or the gospel. That's where we get that word from. And you see, this isn't just a song about a historical event or theory. It's a song about a very real and very necessary liberating salvation of Jesus. This is where the mountaintop announcement image comes from. Nothing short of God coming to rescue us all. So if that's the case, why of three verses in Go Tell It on the Mountain are two of them primarily about shepherds? I mean, maybe God was thinking forward to our Christmas pageants and he knows little kids in shepherd outfits are super cute. But I think there's more to it than that. I think the presence of shepherds has a lot to do with access. I think it meant something to emancipated slaves that shepherds were the first ones to hear the good news of Jesus. See, Luke 2 opens by setting the birth of Jesus firmly in history. It's in the land of Judea, under the reign of Caesar Augustus, under the micro-reign of Quirinius, governor of Syria. Mary and Joseph, like many others, were forced to assemble in their hometowns in order to be counted. Their personhood was stripped away, and what was left was, you're just a number to me for the purpose of taxation. It was humiliating. It was a show of force by Rome, as if saying, 
Rome has all the power and you have nothing. You're simply a giving unit in my eyes. You are a laborer and a source of taxes to feed the empire and the opulence of the emperor. When Rome says, jump, you say, how high? And it's in this setting that the good news of God's salvation comes. And all, uh, of all the people in the world, it comes to some shepherds first. Roman Empire on the one hand and shepherds on the other. You have to understand that if you were make, to make a statement of differences, you couldn't get a much better example than that. It's like Ferrari compared to a Volkswagen Beetle. It's like Belgian waffles compared to those frozen hard Ego ones. It's like Empire Strikes Back versus any movie with Jar Jar Binks in it. It's that much of a difference. It's that much of a difference. Shepherds were stereotyped as dirty inside and out, as crude, as rough around the edges, prone to dirty jokes and foul language. They were almost never seen in a religious service, but they were essential working class people. They were the unseen, unwanted to see people who really kept society going. They were the least important to those in power. And they were the least likely to first receive the good news of Jesus. And yet, there they were, recipients of the angel's song, and what a song it must have been. Now think about this from the people who wrote Go Tell It on the Mountain. For a group of people who had been dragged from their homeland in Africa treated as less than human and forced into labor, the writers of Go Tell It on the Mountain could identify with the shepherds. The empire of America was not on their side, just like the Roman Empire used and ignored the shepherds. But the good news is, is that God is for all people who trust in him. And that good news belongs on your lips and mine as well, because empire is not on our side either. See, no matter how privileged we are, and there are many of us in this room who are quite privileged, but no matter how privileged we are, or no matter how oppressed we are, no matter what our status in the world might be, the world is not on your side. Every world system, from a dictatorship to a democracy, if it is without Christ as its heartbeat, will only treat you well as long as you pull your weight. The minute you become a burden, whether it's through age or economic poverty or physical injury or mental instability, you become obsolete. The world is never going to save you, not from loneliness, not from death, not from the problem of sin and evil. The world system, society, organized around anything but God, it'll die, but it will never die for you. It's not on your side. Which leads us to the third verse in the song, all about Christ being humbly born in a manger, about this baby Jesus being our salvation. Just wait a minute how absurd this might seem. The promise of God through Isaiah was deliverance from the most powerful nation the earth had known at that time, the Babylonian Empire. How would a baby fulfill that promise of deliverance? The promise of the messenger up on the mountain is that God himself would come and establish his kingdom. How would that be accomplished in a baby? The people who wrote, go tell it on the mountain, believed that their deliverer 
from slavery was born in a manger thousands of years ago. That he's the liberator, the breaker of evil, the bringer of life and salvation. How can that be? I think it surprises us because we tend to think of baby Jesus in the wrong way. We think of him as cute and cuddly, weak and vulnerable, soft and simple, and he is all of those things. We need him to be all of those things, accessible. That's why he came as an infant to an unimportant family in a globally unimportant town. But if that's all we think Jesus is, then we've grossly mistaken him. When the Spartans were at war, far from home, they took their ships to Troy and landed on the beach. They were outmanned, outnumbered, outgunned. They would make forays to the fortified city of Troy, this walled city, but then they would be repelled and have to go back to the beach and live in their ships. And then they had the idea to take the wood from those ships and to make a massive horse and to bring it to the gate of Troy and just leave it there and stop fighting. After a while, the Trojans thought, this must be a peace offering. The Spartans have given up. They're going to hightail it home. And so the Trojans opened their massive gates. They brought this horse in. They start partying victoriously, drinking probably way too much. And then at night, when everyone's guard was down, some Spartan soldiers who were hidden in that Trojan horse came out unlocked the gates from the inside and let the Spartan army in. Jesus was, in a way, a Trojan horse. He's born right under the noses of the emperor, the governor, and the ruthless king Herod. He appeared humble and weak and unimportant, especially when he was killed by the Roman Empire. And when he was hanging on that cross, he had less than a few dozen followers and only a handful of people who would actually declare allegiance to him. It appeared, didn't it, as though the enemy had won, as if evil and death and the world powers just consumed Jesus whole. But from inside the locked gates of the tomb, from within the belly of death, And out from under the watchful eye of imperial guards stationed outside that tomb, Jesus unlocked the grave. You know that's the world's worst weapon, like its strongest weapon against us, right? The fear of death. That's all the world can throw at us. And Jesus defeated death, set captives free. That's the good news Isaiah was talking about. And it's the good news which the angels sang to the shepherds. It's the good news Jesus preached when he declared, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And that's the good news that the Jubilee Singers of Fisk University sang in Go Tell It on the Mountain, over the hills and far away, Go Tell It on the Mountain that Jesus Christ is born. Have you received that good news that Jesus Christ, our Savior, is born? Have you come to know Jesus to be the liberator from sin and death and injustice? Have you come to trust in him for rescue? Come to see his birth and his death and his resurrection and ascension as good news? If you haven't, Jesus is ready to receive us, for us to place our faith in, to trust him, 
for salvation and new life. As I look on, out on this room, I know many of you are in leadership or partners of the church. I know many of you have placed your faith in Jesus. And so for those of you who already have, have begun that journey of discipleship, I think the song leaves us with two imperatives. The first is spread the word. Like, go tell out on the mountains the name of the song. A Savior has been born, and His name is Christ the Lord. And God so loved the world that He, he put on flesh and dwelt among us. The world will never be the same. And so, Shouting from the mountaintops in Isaiah might be a prophetic way of saying, get the word out. So you don't need to get your ropes and head up to Mount Baker and shout from the top of the mountain. Not many people will hear you anyway. But ask yourself the question, who in your life needs to desperately know the good news of Jesus? Who in your life doesn't know the love of Christ? Are they ready? And if not, could that be someone that you covenant to pray for more regularly? To ask that the God who, who saves us, who also releases faith, might, might soften a hardened heart or open a closed mind. That's the kind of work that the Spirit does. So I'm going to encourage you, and I'm encouraging myself, let's pray for those in our lives who desperately need to know Christ. And the second thing I think that this call can, calls us to, to do is to spread the word of liberation and salvation by living like it's come to pass. There's no doubt in my mind, I wouldn't be doing this if there was, there's no doubt that, that Jesus is going to come back and bring his kingdom in fullness. He's going to make it all right. He's going to sum up all the loose storylines and all the dead ends. He's going to redeem this world, recreate it, new bodies. Oh, it's going to be awesome. My heart's going to work right. It won't be corrupted. I won't be such a jerk. <sighs> but until then, like he's called, he's given us his spirit. He's given us his spirit and he's called us to reflect the kingdom back into the world. Our actions speak so much louder than our words, especially I think in our current cultural climate, which is grossly oversaturated with people's opinions oversaturated with untrustworthy news sources and sound bites all the time. What we need, I think, is a steady, consistent Jesus love in action. We can do that one step at a time. In the way that we treat people, in the way that we argue with people, in the way that we treat our enemies, people, people are watching us, you know? Like the Jesus people People are watching us and how we interact with people, how we invest our time and our money. When we love our neighbors as ourselves in Jesus' name, we're telling it on the mountain and we announce that the good news of Jesus is arriving. Right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for the good news that you have come, that it's more than just a story or a theory but that you actually did put on flesh and dwell among us. You actually did die for us. You actually rose and defeated death. You ascended and now reign, and you have sent your Spirit on all who have faith in you. Holy Spirit, rise up in your church. Help us to speak well of you. 
rightly of you and to live with your mark on us, Lord. Help us to live in such a way that the world sees you in our words and in our actions. Bless you. Amen.